This is the Strike Mesh Boil Podcast, presented by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. This week we talk about smoking your own malt, we judge an imperial stout, and Matt Savage is back to finish the conversation about starting a homebrew club. Welcome back to Strike Mash Boil. I'm Marco, president of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, and I'm joined by my co-host, Phil. This week, we're going to finish our discussion with our founder, Mr. Matt Savage, and Matt is going to judge an imperial stout. But first, we're going to talk to you about how you can add some dimension and interest to your beers by smoking your own malts. Yeah, so joining us this week for this discussion is a returning guest, Switzer, uh, and new to the show this week is Carl. And you guys have heard me talk about Carl on the show a bunch of times. He's a, a man of uh, tons of wisdom, uh, so we thought he'd be a great addition to this week's show. Welcome back, Mike, and welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks for having me. I've heard my name mm-hmm. dropped a couple times. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so since this is Carl's first time on the show, uh, he has to answer the quickfire questions. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions. First thing that pops into your head, you get one pass. What's your favorite beer style? So I just learned about the one pass, and I was going to use it. I was thinking about using it for this one because I do like pretty much all the styles. But gun to my head, I'm going to say Saison because it's just you could do so much with it. You could basically make any style from it. It's kind of a cop-out. I'm going with that one. Oh, I like it. It's good. Uh, what's your least favorite beer style? I'm not into the spice and era beers. I mean, I can tolerate them. but So no pumpkin okay. beer for you? I like pumpkin flesh and beer. I don't like all the cinnamon crap. How okay. about pumpkin THC beer? I just saw that. That's what they do. That's not really beer, right? Show. It's for another show. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, there's no alcohol. It's just THC. Right. For our listeners, uh, Brett Bauer posted uh, about a uh, THC infused pumpkin beer. So maybe we'll have to get Brett back on the show to talk about the rant about that shit. <laughs> Carl, what is your favorite beer ingredient? Uh, I gotta go with like Pilsner malt. What is your least favorite beer ingredient? And this is not the show to say smoked malt. No, uh, I'm gonna go with. <laughs> The reason why I don't really like spice and herb beers would be hibiscus. And you guys talked about this on the previous show, uh, trying to describe the flavors and things like that. It's just something that, you know, I equivalent to like hairspray. Hmm. That's how I perceive it. So it's a nay for me. Okay. Uh, what piece of brewing equipment could you never live without? It's another difficult one. I'm, you know, I've been, I've been brewing from, you know, just regular burners to coolers to full systems. So, I mean, you need something. So I need a system to brew on, so there isn't any sort of single equipment. So maybe I'm going to pass on that one. All right. Okay. What piece of brewing equipment do you think is most overrated? I got to say the conical. Everybody keeps saying that it's the, oh, uh, you know. interesting. You know, what the piece that they can't live without. It's, you know, granted, I'm just getting getting to use use one now. I'm getting used to it. Obviously, you guys have seen some blunders on the, uh, on the interwebs of me. But <clears throat> right now, I'm going... Conical. What is your dream piece of brewing equipment if money is not a factor? I don't know, like a seven-barrel brewery somewhere in Methuen. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, it's not a piece of equipment. It's a whole right. brew house. Yeah, right. If money is not an option, then I, you know, I don't even have to sell it. I'll just brew it. Tim threw down the shed or the barn before, so I think we can just do a whole brew house. That's yeah, fine. there you go. What beer topic subject style do you wish would just go away? You know, and it's not even just a style, it's to talk about it. It's that the milkshake IPA. We like our beer. We know what we like. Just forget about everything else. What is your desert island beer? So uh, it's got to be Arthur. Oh, that's a good one. I like, you know, it's it's not only it, it's available, it's something you can acquire. It's not something that's super rare, but it's definitely something I could drink every day right. for the rest of my life. When you aren't in the mood for a beer, what is your go-to cocktail? 
I'm primarily a beer guy, but I don't turn down whiskey. Any specific kind of whiskey? Because you got a couple whiskey lovers right here. I know, I know. I, I you know, I, I can't even say right now. Yeah, equal opportunity whiskey lover. There yeah, it's brown and yeah. distilled. It's yes. for Carl. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Carl. Uh, I, I got to well, say that uh, Carl and I, we've got the, the Hill Farmstead vibes. We got the Saison vibes. Carl and mm-hmm. I are like best friends, basically. <laughs> well, uh, the reason why I said it was a cop-out is because you could you could have a hoppy Saison. You can have a dark Saison. You can have a clean Saison, a wild Saison, <laughs> Brent, you know, everything. So it's you can really do whatever you want. <laughs> you, could have a, you could have a spiced herb Saison, I but you guess. wouldn't like that. <laughs> I wouldn't like that. <laughs> I went I went Verame with my Desert Island beer, which is a little bit harder to find than Arthur. All right. So uh, this week, guys, we're going to be talking about smoking your own malts. You know, there are a ton of options out there for grains that you guys can get for homebrewers these days. And, and our local homebrew shop, Beer and Wine Hobby, has a metric ton of grains to choose from between crystal malts, Munich malts, roasted malts and even some smoked malts. Uh, so the question here is, why would we do it ourselves? And smoked beer is something that a lot of us in the club really like. It's kind of a bit of a taboo beer style. So you don't, you know, not everybody likes it, hit or miss for some folks, uh, but we're kind of into it. Uh, so for folks that are into smoked malt, and if you're a home brewer, we thought, hey, let's talk about how you could do this yourself. Um, Switzer, I'm going to kick it off with you because... Uh, you know, between the four of us, you've got this pretty badass smoking malt system and you've experimented a bunch. So I, w- I want to hear like, A, why have you started this, started doing it yourself versus just buying it? Uh, have you seen some benefit from it? And, you know, what what kind of rig have you built for yourself? You know, I, c- I could talk for a while about smoked beers. And, you know, for, for people that aren't into smoked beers or don't know about smoked beers, when you're malting, you've got to dry out the malt. There are a lot of different ways to do it. You could use the sun, you could use the wind, um, but a lot of it was done with wood. So they would start a fire to secrete that heat to dry out the malt, and you'd get that smokiness into the malt. You know, it's a reason that that scotch has you know peat you know smell into it, and it's a, the reason that you get when you're drying out malt with wood, you're going to get that smokiness from the wood. It gets into the malt, into the grain. And then when you make the beer, you know that carries over into the beer. So, Mike, is it yeah. safe to say that at some point in history, all beers were probably smoked beers or at least had some bit of smoke flavor in them? I think so. I mean, if you're talking about historical beers, you know, they probably all had some some sort of smoke to them, depending on what wood they were using. It would be lighter if they were using, you know, a lighter wood or a darker wood. But, uh, you know, they were probably all a little bit sour, too, because of, you know, hygiene and sanitation and everything. But really, smoked beers kind of died out. You know, when Pilsners took off and and British beers, they wanted cleaner flavors when, you know, they were able to isolate their yeast. It was just that drive for more consistency, cleaner taste, clearer beer. And they kind of went away, except for Bamberg, Germany. So in Bamberg, Germany, that tradition is still very much alive. Two main breweries there, Ekta Schlenkerla and Spezial, are the two places that actually smoke their own malt, and they really love their Rauch beer or their smoke beer there. And that's really where I fell in love with with the style, is uh, going to Bamberg, having those beers there, always with really heavy German food, which pairs really well. They make this thing called the Zwebeln. Uh, it's a meat-filled onion 
which just goes so well with a, a giant moss of smoked beer. Sounds wonderful. It's it's fantastic, especially on a cold night. But those beers are still very much alive and loved there. What really drove me to to smoke my own malt, you know, we talk about smoked malts that are available. You can get them from Best and Wireman, and there are other ones that are out there now. But really what you're mostly finding are beechwood smoked malts, which is what is typical to Bamberg. They use beechwood. Or now you can find oak uh, oak smoked wheat, which is used in Grotzer or Grotzitzki. But that wasn't always available. That's more of a recent thing. So there is a limitation to the types of wood. And depending on what wood you use, you're going to get a different flavor in the beer. To answer the question, what really drove me to smoke my own malt, which is, you know, an extra process, extra time, uh, was I fell in love with beer from Echte Schlenkerla in Bamberg. uh, And it's called their Eich double uh, double bock which is their oak smoked double bock and you cannot get oak smoked pilsner or oak smoked munich uh, malt commercially so i decided to make it myself really the process isn't that complicated you don't want to get your malt hot um, you can denature the enzymes you could end up ruining your pilsner or your munich malt your base malt and you wouldn't be able to convert so the goal is to create a good amount of smoke Uh, to do it in kind of a coolish environment, not too hot. And I made a really simple setup. I took a little mini Weber grill. I took some, uh, you know, uh, aluminum ductwork, like you would hook up to your dryer. I cut a hole in the top of the lid. I connected that dryer duct to a big cardboard box because I didn't want to have a big, you know, piece of smoky (laughs) uh, equipment hanging around for when I wasn't smoking because I really only smoke a few times a year. Um, but hooked it up to that cardboard box. I wet down the malt. So I took about 10 pounds of grain, um, enough to smoke about half of the malt in a batch. Uh, Wet it down, got it nice and damp, um, put it on some aluminum screen, basically the screen that you'd put into a screen door, put that inside that box and just made sure that I had a good uh, smoke that was rolling over that malt as it dried out. And I just simply took some oak, you know, post oak they would use for smoking meat, put that in there and just let that smoke roll over the malt for a good hour. The other step that's important is letting that malt uh, rest for a while. If you brewed with that the same day or the next day, you'd get some acrid flavors from that fresh smoke. So what you want to do is take that malt when it's good and dry after you smoked it, put it in some paper bags and just let it breathe and air out for a while. Now, if you put that in your basement, you're gonna, your whole basement's going to smell beautiful, <laughs> like like oak smoke uh, while you're waiting. I've waited, you know, a week, two weeks to let that malt kind of uh, rest and, and mellow out before I brewed with it. But I'll tell you, you get an amazing flavor from it. Um, if you're looking for something consistent where it's going to be the same every time, then go and buy, you know, Best or Wireman, get that beach, uh, beach smoke malt. And it'll be, you know, as long as it's fresh, it'll be pretty consistent. But if you're willing to take a little gamble, um, you could smoke your own. But a lot of people will ask, you know, how much smoke malt should I use? Uh, usually when you start off, you know, maybe 50, 60 percent, depending on how much smoke you like. But like most things, the more you, you have, the more you want. Um, and so I'm at a point where I'm doing, you know, 75, 80. Sometimes I did one with 100 percent smoke malt. And uh, it was, you know, pungent and strong, but a really good character. Mike, you're 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 yeah. you're making me think. Uh, you know, I've I've only brewed maybe two smoked beers ever. You know, I, I didn't smoke my own malt for it. I bought smoked malt for mm-hmm. it. I, I can think of when I purchase the smoked malt. They don't actually say what kind of malt it is. It's mm-hmm. just smoked malt. So now you've mentioned a couple of 
types of malt. Yeah. You mentioned Pilsner in Munich. Uh, is that typically what you smoke? Is that where you've gotten the best results or are there other malts? Like how are you picking which malt to I did, smoke? I did Pilsner in Munich because I was going after that Eich Doublebach. And so that Doublebach has Munich and Pilsner in it, obviously. When you're buying uh, Rauch malt at you know, Beer and Wine Hobby, wherever you go, it's going to be Pilsner malt that's been smoked. Um, you can either buy uh, Rauch malt, which is Pilsner malt that's smoked with beechwood, or you can buy the oak-smoked wheat, uh, which is their wheat malt that's smoked that you're going to use for a grotzer. There are some other smaller uh, malteries that are doing different smoked malts, but they're harder to get. And the beauty of doing your own is that you can use any type of wood you want. You, know, you can use uh, applewood, you know, pecan, mesquite, if you want something really different. And you can actually go kind of crazy. And I did that this past fall. I went out on a limb and just said, I want to try something completely off the wall. And during the fall up here on the North Shore and, and most of the coast, they collect, uh, they harvest salt hay which is the hay that grows right in the, you know, the salt marshes um, along the coast here. And they use that for bedding for animals. They use it for, uh, you know, putting on, on fields as nutrient. They use it for a lot of different things. But I can tell you, I have not seen any, any, any Google search talking about using it for beer. So I went out on a limb. I, I took that salt hay. And I smoked some Pilsner malt with that. I used that and it smelled great. I mean, the nice thing is that you can know right away whether you like the smell of that smoke or you don't. I had no idea whether it was going to be terrible or not. Uh, but I made enough for a Hellas. And I did my standard Hellas recipe. And um, I went a, an extra step and, you know, washed down some of that hay, get the dirt off it, make sure it was nice and clean. But I actually put that in my mash as a filter bed as well, just to kind of add it in another way. But uh, I'm drinking the beer right now, and it's really unique, really fantastic, really earthy, light smoke. I feel like I get a little saltiness from it, which I don't know is just psychological, uh, but it's a great beer. And it's just, you know, it's another completely off-the-wall way to, you know, change recipes, to try something new um, and to do something different. I guess the first step is you have to enjoy smoked beers. So not everybody does. Nobody else has saute smoked malt on the planet. You're, you are literally the only one. So you, you get to uh, uh, claim that one for yourself, which is, which is kind of cool. And that's what's part of the fun of smoking your own malt is you're going to create a flavor profile that likely is going to be unique to you. Mm -hmm. And even if you're smoking things with uh, a similar type of malt and similar types of wood, your process is likely going to be a little bit different that you're going to just create a different flavor profile, exactly. which brings me to Carl, because, you know, we, we, we hear Mike talk about this, Mike, you've got this pretty well thought out system and, you know, folks that are listening to this are going to say to themselves like, God, I'm not set up for that. Like, how the hell am I going to be smoking my own malt? I'm not, uh, I don't have this, you know, dryer vent rig that I've built to do it. Carl, you you've smoked your own malt and you've and you've done a little bit of malt baking. I guess uh, I would call it roasting, but it's not really roasting. It's more of an you know baking. Uh, but you've done it in a much simpler method and have gotten some pretty unique results. You want to talk about what you've tried and, and what you've done before? Sure. Uh another reason just to speak to supply and the reason to smoke your own grains. I mean, like you said, Mike, you know, the smoked beer, that style isn't isn't well liked by everybody. And so maybe your local homebrew store doesn't supply it all the time. Like if you want to make 10 gallons of smoked beer and you need 10 plus pounds of, of smoked grain, your local homebrew store may not 
have all that at all times. Like I know beer and wine only carries about 10 pounds at a time. They buy it in 10 pound sacks. That's they don't buy full sacks. So you can go there wanting the, the beech wood and they may not have it. I mean, granted, if you have enough, if you plan enough time in advance, you can get anything you want online, but that's just another reason that you can, you know, a reason to smoke your own other than, you know, we're all homebrewers. We like, a lot of us like to cook. I like to do things ourselves. So that's the other reason. Marco, what you're referring to is this, uh, Lithuanian style beer that was a, a baked mash. So basically you, and it's nothing's pasteurized in the whole, in the whole process. You're basically, uh, what we did was we mashed normally and then we stuffed it in the oven to basically create those caramel reactions and uh, made reactions to get some more different flavor profile out of, out of that grain. Now, typically they would, they would do a mash step and they would fill these vats with the mash liquid and all mixed with the grain and they'd stuff it in these large uh brick or clay ovens and they would bake the mash for several hours and you would see it, it would like it would form a nice crust on the top you'd get you get the conversion now in our when we did it we, we converted the uh the mash before but in this case they're doing the full conversion during that temp rise as the internal is is rising through the sac rest temperatures um, and then it's starting to caramelize all that sugar, but still there's plenty, plenty left over to ferment the beer later. And then they'll ferment it in like a clay pot and they don't boil it or anything like that. And then they serve it as soon as it's, as soon as it's fresh and drink it very, very fresh. So, so they don't have to worry about, you know, having it go bad or anything like that. So it's just kind of an interesting thing where we wanted to see what would happen to this, you know, heating, heating of the grain and trying to caramelize those sugars. It was it was it was a beer that was submitted to the advent calendar way back when. It was it did produce sort of a, a strange flavor. I mean that was you know, there's other variables and we never tried it again necessarily in the same way. So we don't know where you know, if it's directly from the mash, if it was the yeast we used, if it was the, the hops and or any combination of the three. But it's kind of a it was kind of an interesting thing. And there's a few write ups and videos you can you can search search that style. Uh, it was it was kind of cool. It's kind of fun to do. Yeah, there's a lot of really unique beer styles out there that that utilize some some different interesting mash methods. Uh, that being one of them. You know, something else that we did, uh, which you know, Carl, you can talk about the results of this. But you know, over the last three ish years, we instituted the annual club cookout. You know, we bring our families. Uh, we have a big feast. We hang out. It's usually in August. Uh, and it's just a good time for us to just summer cook out, uh, enjoy each other's company with our families. And normally we do barbecue, right? So that's like our big thing. Uh, uh, you know, somebody brings the smokers, uh, we'll do smoked ribs, pork butts, briskets, whatever it is that we normally do. And and one year we said, hey, it looks like the smoker is still going. All the meats pulled off the thing. This th There's still a little bit of smoke coming out of this thing. You had this idea of like, you know, a lot of us carry a bunch of base malt at home. You're like, let's throw some malt in a pan, poke some holes in the pan and throw it on the smoker and let's see what happens. Right. So we uh, we did that with a couple of pans that you want to talk about, you know, what we did, because that's like if you want to talk about the simplest method to smoke malt, it would be that it was just on a standard smoker, holes it, in an aluminum pan and smoke some malt. Right. I mean, it was it right off the cuff. You know, we used the same, you know, aluminum pans that we were serving the food in. And I'm not sure who came up it was, if it was myself or you, Marco, but it was definitely like we were like, you know, giddy little school kids, you know, oh, let's go, you know, <laughs> jumping around. I remember jogging downstairs, ripping open the sack of Pilsner, 
there's no alcohol involved in this in, in, in any yeah. yeah. way. No, no. <laughs> no, we hadn't been drinking for five hours prior to that. No, that's not. I remember I, remember I opened up a bag of, of, of Pilsner. It just goes like everywhere. So we fill, we filled the tray up. We poke as many holes. I'm not even sure we poked the holes in it. There was somebody else said that, you know, you should have poked holes in the bottom of them. Like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so, so we weren't expecting anything great. This was like a, a bullet style size Weber, a fairly large one that we one were using. One of the vertical style smokers? Yes. And it was just, you know, it we had taken the food off and it had been sitting for quite a while. So there was still heat to it, but not 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 a strong heat. And you could see it was still producing smoke. So we threw the pan on there and we basically left it there almost until the, the coals were out. And it actually produced quite a, you know, smoky smell to the malt. So we, we packed it up, we bagged it up for later. And so the next month we were doing the jamboree so we decided we were going to brew a beer with that malt and serve it at the at the jamboree and um we basically did like it was a, it was like an english pale ale was actually the base recipe and we used this malt we wanted to produce some sort of ale so we could turn it around quickly it it did well i mean it, people it was perceived well it had a nice subtle smoke to it um which i prefer in most of those styles of beer although i do like some of the the crazier ones that mike mentioned that Bach that you're talking about sounds delicious. Not to mention the uh, the oak smoked malt that you're talking about too. Um, so it, it was perceived well. You know, it got votes. You know, people came back for it over and over again. So it was like a success. You know, it was like one of those things, off the cuff things. And uh, you know, in in my brewing history, I've had a lot of uh, oopsie daisies and things like that that turn into something really cool. So it was fun. Well, it's just an example of how easy it could be, right? It like doesn't have to be a complicated process. You know, we were fortunate enough that we were already smoking something, so we just took advantage of letting it burn out with malt inside of it. It didn't have that hardcore, you know, punch you in the face smoke character that some you know Rauk beers will have, uh, but it had this really pleasant, subtle smoke to it that was really nice. And and so for those that are thinking about you know, diving into the world of smoking your own malt, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Now, if you want to make traditional, these really robust, smoky beers, um, you might have to, you know, take a little bit more precaution to it, but for not precaution, but more steps to achieving that objective. Uh, But if you're just looking to smoke some malt and experiment a little bit, it can be as easy as I'm wrapping up my my smoker for the day and I'm just going to toss it on there and try something new, you know, without adding smoke to it. But, you know, you've got these beer styles that utilize something as simple as, you know, throwing your mash in a pot in the oven and and seeing what happens. And it's, uh, it's a really cool, interesting stuff uh, that you can do on your own and, and, and have some interesting results that'll create something unique for you. I think it's great that you guys uh, went with a pale ale. And I think a lot of people get stuck thinking that a Rauch beer has to be, and granted, many of them are. And the most you know recognized examples are kind of that amber, richer German lager. You know, if you go to Bamberg, Echter Schlenkerle and Spezial, they're, they're doing a smoked Hellas. They're doing different styles. So you can go light and you can go light on the smoke like you guys did. Make it more of kind of a background character, which is awesome. And it's a really kind of a good introduction for people that might not have had uh, Rauch beer, smoked beers before. And you can make it that light thing. And then you can go for, you know, a hammer strike with a Doppelbach with just in your face smoke as well. So there's just so much that you can play with. Um, Just a really fun variable to play with. And I encourage people to, you know, start small. 
uh, maybe go to the, the store and look look for Echte Schlenkerle or Spezial, good German example to kind of get your feet wet and understand what it should taste like. But don't be, you know, bound in by that. You know, you can really play with it make it a creative element and just you could make a beer that nobody's ever tasted before yeah what's that readily available smoked hellas the commercial one the echte schlenkerla yeah i wasn't going to try to pronounce it because i would i would totally <laughs> fuck that yeah <laughs> which is beautiful yeah, it's in cans now too so you can get it even fresher typically when i drink smoked beer i like how the smoke plays off with darker malts. I, I think mm-hmm. that that blend is really well. So you're probably more of a smoke and dagger fan from Jack Savvy. <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, but, uh, but on the flip side, like I actually really enjoy that smoke. Tell us that we, that was just mentioned because it's not a over the top smoke character mm-hmm. in a, in a paler beer. So I like when there's this, I like pale beers that have a subtle smoke character, but when it goes crazy, like, you know, using Jack Savvy as an example, like fire in the ham that, you know, that beer is for a pale beer, a little too intense for me to like it. I I think the darker malts kind of balance it out a little bit more. That's my personal preference. Folks out there that haven't had smoked beers. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful beer drinking to be done with some smoked beer. So uh, you should definitely try it out, Uh, but I would ease your way into it and uh, start finding some of those beers and and, uh, the flavor profiles that will mix together for you. For me personally, if it gets too smoky and too pale, I'm not a big fan, but when you get a really intense smoked beer with some of those darker malts, I think it's a beautiful thing. So, and everybody has their own preference on that. One place that smoke malt doesn't belong is when you're submitting Scottish ales in BJCP categories and competitions. You go look at BJCP. Somebody, somebody's found out the hard way. I yeah. Think. No, no, I've never done it, but it is uh, every time you read those uh, Scottish beer descriptions, there's a big line in there that says smoke is not appropriate. Now, you can put smoked malt in whatever you want. And Sean Dooley and I have brewed a Scottish style ale with some peat smoked malt we just used a little bit because we wanted that scotchy type flavor and it worked great but you could not submit that in a traditional scottish ale category in a in a comp you would have to throw it in the smoked and wood uh category and be careful with that peat smoked malt the peat smoked malt is holy shit yeah there was a fantastic homebrew talk thread i had i was reading through years ago and it was somebody talking about some ungodly percentage of their, their grain bill and asking if they should do it. And everybody resoundingly said, no, do not do this. And then we all waited days and days to see what this person would come back with. And the only thing they said is they finally tasted the beer and it tasted, quote, like an open grave. <laughs> an open one. It was fantastic. Yeah. I remember reading that one because uh, we uh, we ended up going with in like a 10-gallon batch of a imperial-style beer so probably eight nine percent alcohol so it's probably like 35 40 pounds of grain i think we used all of like eight ounces Mm -hmm. and it gave that nice subtle i would call it a a highland smoke or maybe like talisker oban it was not ardbeg lafroig like fuck all you know, <laughs> nice. not Isla smoke. I just, to, I just want to throw that out there because I'm part of the Ardbeg cult. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, <laughs> me too. You, you made me actually think of something really uh, quick. I, I was earlier we mentioned how in you know probably the early days there was likely smoked malt and beer, and they were likely sour. Are there any smoked sours right now? Oh, there is a there's a German style that's both smoky and sour, and I I don't have it in front of me. I have not made one nor tasted one nor do I desire one? <laughs> maybe I would maybe drink an exam one just to see if I could go there. 
Yeah, I know. Um, it's like, it's one of those things where you've piqued my curiosity. I don't know that I want five gallons or, you know, more of anything that's smoked and sour. But, but it, will, my it will surprise you. I, yeah. I thought Grotzer, Grotzitzky was insane on paper. I mean, you have smoke. It's 100% smoked wheat. So the first thing you're thinking is, I'm going to stick this mash. Then you're hopping it like a Pilsner. So it's like a hoppy, super hoppy smoked wheat beer, which you're really not supposed to put a lot of hops into a Rauk beer at all. So it kind of goes against everything. But you're And it's super low, low alcohol, too. And so you're left with this like amazingly drinkable, it's almost like a smoked Gouda spicy character to it. You guys have all had it. I know you have at meetings and, and, uh, it was in our uh, advent calendar this year. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But that's, I mean, it's an amazing style and it's another way to play around with smoke malt. And I did fail to mention that there, you can get cherry wood smoked pretty readily, uh, at homebrew shops. I think Breeze does that. And that's a nice stepping stone too, because it's kind of a milder smoke, but, um, you know, if you start 50, 60% of your, your grain bill, um, if you're doing something lighter, maybe you go a little bit lower in, in percent when you're getting started. But it's just like anything. I mean, the, the first time you take taste Lefroig, you're, you say, oh, my God, what the hell is this? But, you know, then <laughs> a little bit later, drink the whole bottle yourself because <laughs> it's amazing and you get addicted to that peat smoke. I think it's important to know that you don't have to make a smoked beer, you know, with a smoked malt. You can use it as a character malt and a porter or a stout mm-hmm. and try it that way first just to see how you can yeah. see it, if you can perceive it in the in the background or something like that. And some of some um you know, styles or some brands out there may even use smoked malt and you don't even know it. So if you like a stout and you happen to see on the ingredients, you you know, you can't be too surprised if you happen to see smoked malt on there yeah the worst beer i've ever had with smoked malt was at a, a brewery barbecue joint in new mexico right on the texas border and they made a mesquite smoked hatch green chili pale <laughs> and it was horrendous absolutely horrendous mesquite just all up in everything not a good beer just yeah so stay mesquite's away. probably in the same you know uh, vein as peat, where yeah. you got to use a small amount because it's just gonna knock you in the face. That I, I just don't think it paired well with a hatch green chili pale ale. <laughs> just a lot going on there. It sounds rough for sure. Uh, well, guys, I, I think this was a really great conversation about uh, smoking your own malt, and we heard some really good examples of an advanced way to do it and really simple ways to do it. So I appreciate you guys taking the time to chat with us about it. Mike, Carl, really appreciate you guys joining us. Thank you. Thanks. If you like what you've been hearing on our show, hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast service. And if you have any ideas or feedback for us, leave us a review or shoot us a DM on Instagram at StrikeMashBoil. Or join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. All right, time again for this week's beer review. Each week, we're going to review a beer submitted to us by a member of the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club or from one of our listeners. Our guest judge is going to walk through the judging process as if this were a homebrew competition. All they know is the category of the beer, which this week is 20C Imperial Stout. First Imperial Stout for us. First Imperial Stout, yeah. Yeah, check that one off as a milestone. Uh, so joining us again is uh, founder of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, Matt Savage, who also is a BJCP certified judge. Matt, welcome back. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Matt, before we dive into this one, you want to give us a rundown of 20C Imperial Stout? Yeah, sure. So this category is definitely, you know, big time on the on the different flavors and uh, that type of thing. So it's definitely a malt forward beer, but the the hopping is is fairly high, more so than you'd probably think as far as the IBU rate. And that's really to make it so the beer itself isn't cloying. So they, you know, the high alcohol rate will dry the beer out, but also that the hopping makes it so that all that roasted malt, you know, if you use chocolate malt, that type of thing, because there is a, you know, the finishing gravity on this, on this uh, style is usually fairly high and to help dry out the finish, you know, the high hopping rate plus the alcohol really helps to round out that finish. So it's not, you know, so it's not unpleasant. The, as far as the style itself goes, you know, the, the mouthfeel itself should be like, you know, viscous, chewy, you know, it's, it's got a lot of uh, sugar in, in suspension. You know, this is definitely a sipper category. You know, I think the, the category itself can go as high as, I think it's 15% or something like that. I mean, it's, it's a fairly high ABV. I want to say it rivals, you know, the American barley wine category or anything like that, as far as, you know, what the, the alcohol content can be. So this is a sipper for sure. Probably not something you want to drink when it's 90 degrees out. Well, well and I find that, or I think these kind of run a, a pretty wide range too. When you're talking about up to 15%, they, an Imperial stuff could be also as low as 8%, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And on those ones, uh, it's difficult because like when you get this category, like you're saying, you could have some at 8, you could have some at 10, you could have some at 15. As long as they're done well, you know, as long as the brewer is adjusting the hopping rate and things like that, as far as what the alcohol percentage is, uh, usually they work pretty well. All right, great. So let's uh, let's dive in. Yeah, so on the aroma, it's like big time, you know, dark fruit. I'm getting some, you know, that definitely that roasted malt, chocolate, coffee, you know, all the things you'd want to be want to be seeing in this style. That's all from, you know, roasted malt, you know, as far as you know, it could be, you know, uh, chocolate malt, anything like that. They all kind of meld together. And it's almost looks like smells like a chocolate coffee. Yeah, it's interesting because it has that really unique blend of chocolate coffee, but also those dark fruit characters that you don't always think go together, but just seem to work in in a dark beer like this. Yeah, I mean, booze and coffee works really well, right? It sure does. Yeah, I think I think you can also like the the aroma as well. I think you get a little bit of the alcohol factor in there. And as far as like the uh, you know the the appearance is great. I mean, it's you know opaque. You can't see through it. It looks like a can of oil. The lacing on the side of the glass is beautiful. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the carbonation is, is right on point. I mean, you don't want this to be highly carbonated because then you get that really carbonic bite. And I think it would also make the alcohol come out uh, more than it should. So this style is more in like the medium, low, low carbonation uh, area. Uh, something that strikes me as kind of unique in this, and I, I can't think of, I can't think of too many beers I've actually noticed this on, but it's the, the head on this beer is like brown it's not like that white frothy head it's like this dark brown which i i can't really think of a lot of beers that i've noticed that on before yeah and i mean you yeah even on like a an american stout or something like that you're usually still on like the brownish tinge but yeah in a russian imperial stout there's so much roasted malt the srm is so high that the even the head itself will become uh brown like like it's showing here all right let's get into the taste yeah the taste i mean I think it hides the alcohol fairly well. I mean, it's a little bit warming. You're definitely getting like those roasted malt chocolate. The carbonation is slightly lower than I would have expected, but I don't think it's a ding to it. It's just on the lower end of the of the style. I want to see if you can get like a almost like a dark cherry note to it. Oh, cherry! That's a yeah. That's an interesting character that I'm I'm definitely mm-hmm. getting that I 
was trying to figure out which like dark fruit it is. Like a lot of times when I have um, Imperial stouts, it's like that plum character, but this one is, yeah, it's a little bit different. That cherry note is, is pretty prominent. Yeah. A lot of times, yeah, you can get some plum, you can get some raisin or something like that. But yeah, I, I would say this one veers more on the, on the dark fruit end of it. I get with that lower carbonation, almost a, it gives a little bit of a creaminess to the beer. Yeah. Yeah. It helps with the, with the mouthfeel and like the, the perceived body of it for sure. Because if it, the carbonation gets too high. You get that bite at the finish that, that mm-hmm. takes away, I think, from the body of the beer. Yeah, this is another one of those. Um, I'm looking at the guidelines. Another one that has sort of like a, a range. It says low to moderate for carbonation. And and so, yeah, like you, to your point earlier, like it's just low on the low end, but it could be a little bit higher. I'd, I'd be interested to see what a beer like this with that higher carbonation would does, especially with some of that carbonic acid uh, added with the alcohol, added with those flavors. It might be something that throws it off a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the thing with carbonation, too, is a lot of times it will bring out a little bit more complexity in the flavors and things like that. And I don't think this is necessarily one dimensional, but I would like to see a little bit more complexity in there as far as uh, whether it be a little bit more hop bitterness or, you know, more of that malt flavor where it's like dark chocolate, but then also has like a, a prune raisin type note to it too, to kind of counteract each other. But I mean, yeah, it's definitely, I'd say dark cherry forward. So it leaves a little bit, I think as far as flavor could, uh, could be as far as what the, you know, the recipe is, is, as far as this beer goes. So there's a real difference when you're going from an American stout to an Imperial stout, just, you're just ramping everything up. Um, so an American stout, uh, the hop, the hop presence in an American stout is very apparent. Uh, you know, it's almost like a super hoppy Brown that would have more ABV to it and a little bit more body. Like the Americans, you know, an English stout would probably more closely related to a Russian Imperial stout because uh, the American hop character and that type of thing wouldn't be as as prevalent in uh, in an English stout. So it's a, it's like a bumped up English stout kind of is what a Russian Imperial stout would be. All right, Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot. I did this to Nick a, a few weeks back. Difference between a porter and a stout. <laughs> which porter just uh, american porter american style what the hell's the difference uh so an american porter would be definitely uh more drinkable less hop character to it be more on the malt side american style would be more on the hoppy side but the difference between you know a robust porter and uh and a english stout yeah, you'd be hard pressed to be able to pick out the two i think yeah because we, we were talking about this in uh on one of our episodes and somebody had submitted a porter and I'm looking at it in the glass, I'm drinking it, I'm smelling it. I'm like, if you told me it was a stout, I'd still think it was a stout. Like I wouldn't have any freaking idea. So it, was, it started some conversation and, and Nick said that there's been a lot of discussion about it. And he basically shared, you know, there's some mild differences between the types of malts that might distinguish them. But really, same answer as you, like you'd be hard pressed to really tell them apart. Right. And I think you could do the same with uh, some things that breweries call brown ales. You know, not to ding Treehouse, but Treehouse is uh, bare. That's a stout. That's not a brown. Is it that dark? I swear I've had it before. I don't think I remember it being that. It's it's, it's very dark. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Okay. Wait, am I thinking of Ma? Is Ma like the like more amber beer they have? I can't remember. Uh, so at Post and Beam, a lot of times, you know, when I used to work on uh, Fridays and stuff, people would bring beers in from different breweries and stuff just to get our opinions on on what it was. I was like, oh, this is a good stout. He's like, no, it's a brown. I was like, no, it's a stout. But <laughs> That seems like a bit more of a stretch for me, right? To like brew something and call it a brown and then have it taste 
and look like a stout. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is by far a bigger stretch. I mean, porter stout. I mean, as long as you're not saying, and this is, you know, I'm trying to brew an American porter and it looks like a Russian imperial stout. I mean, yeah, American stout versus, you know, American porter. I, all I think of is the body between the two for a porter versus a stout. Normally the stout would have a thicker body to it and it'd be a little bit more viscous than a porter would be. But then you have a robust porter, which totally throws all that out the window. So those damn, you know, shaded lines between beers. Uh, yeah. Right. And I mean, that's, you know, a good point too. When you're entering a beer, if you add things to it and you can't perceive them when you finish them, don't put it on the score sheet or don't put it on your entry because you're going to get dinged for it. You know I mean, if you went into it trying to brew a stout and you think it's more of a porter, enter it as a porter, regardless of what you went out. Yeah, um, I think uh, when we were talking about this before, if I remember correctly, I think Nick said, enter in both. See what happens, yeah. uh, which is an interesting category. But we, I, we've mentioned on the show before, Phil, that if uh, you say that this is my pineapple IPA, that shit better taste like pineapple. If yeah. it doesn't taste like pineapple, yeah. do not call it a pineapple IPA. Yeah, if you call it, out a special ingredient, it better tastes like that special ingredient. No shit. The biggest one I find with, with stouts is maple. People always say, oh, there's maple syrup in it, but then it ferments all the way out. You don't get any maple yeah. character in it. Just yeah. enter it as an imperial stout at that point because all the ABV went up and it doesn't taste anything like maple. I found the place you have to use maple in a beer is in the secondary because yep. it'll ferment out for sure, but you're not boiling off all those compounds as if you added it in the end of the boil or even like in a whirlpool. So all those maple flavor compounds will stay in the beer if you use it in the secondary. Same thing with honey. Honey is the exact same way. A lot of volatile compounds in there. So if you're going yep. to use those kinds of flavors in a beer, do it in the do it in secondary fermentation or you know right at the end of primary something like that. Don't put it in the kettle. Well, you're saying secondary, and you mean like at high Krausen. Uh, yeah, high Krausen shortly thereafter. Yeah, there's we we will probably have a show on uh, yeah. primary versus secondary. Should you do it? Should you not? All that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, like as fermentation is starting to wind itself down. I've actually had I've had better results with honey and and uh, maple syrup actually with uh, with using it to carb the beer. So oh, yeah. to prime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me too. Uh, the keg, and then all those volatiles stay in the keg. You know what I mean? As long as it's yeah. sealed and that type of thing. I, you know, it takes a long time. But as far as the biggest maple flavor I've ever had in a beer, I poured a bunch of maple syrup, racked on top of it, and forgot about it for a couple of months, and then came back to it. And it was delicious. Yeah. I've bottle conditioned beers with honey, and you got to be careful because different yeah. honeys almost like have different. It's weird. You'd think a uh, honey is the same. You know, they have different flavors, but the sugar content would be the same. Oh, just yeah. Um, I mean, even on the season, depending upon what season it is, your your honey could have a different sugar rating. Yeah. Well, so how I've, the fuck I've, would you know that? You, I mean, you really, can test it. Sure. But we're not going to Who the hell is going to do that? Well, I mean, I guess if you're homesteading and you're really that curious about it, but like... Yeah, I should have two beehives uh, in April. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised you don't have a single beehive yet. The ones I've done, Marco, I've used it in the, in the uh, bottle priming for like uh, Belgian Saison. So if it, if it, you get medium carbonation, you're good. If you get a really high carbonation... It's a Belgian beer. It's yeah, that's it, fine. Right. So I wouldn't do it for an English beer where, holy shit, I got, uh, you know, you're trying to put honey in a bitter and you end up with a super highly carbonated bitter. That's not going to fly. But Belgian beers. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, you could even do it, you know, to be on the safe rate, right? Like do 75% your normal sugar, 25%, you know, maple yeah. or honey or whatever your other thing is going to be. And like you said, give yourself a little bit of a ceiling as far as what the style would be. So if you do over carb, it's still within style. Yeah, yeah. and I would just um, suggest that folks go to, there's a lot of really great calculators out there in measuring the priming sugar because it's not all the same if it's telling you it you need not. four ounces of of dextrose it's not four ounces of honey so make sure you use one of those calculators yeah, the, the best one out there for all the different sugars i have found is the northern brewer calculator which i'm happy to to give a thumbs up for because they're no longer owned by anheuser-busch inbev <laughs> i think there's a spreadsheet uh roaming around in the uh internet as well that you could do as far as like this is the amount of beer this is what my final gravity is this is the thing i want to try adding to it and it'll give you like a roundabout answer as far as what you can add. Uh, so now that we've gone completely off the rails and away <laughs> yeah. from what we're actually here to do, uh, back to the beer, Matt, overall impressions and a score. Yeah. So I think, I think the aroma was good. I thought that the uh, appearance of it was good. I thought it was a little one dimensional as far as what the, the flavor is. So I'd probably be in like the, I'd be in the 35 range. I think it's within style. I think it has a little bit of room for improvement, but I don't think there's any, uh, you know, glaring flaws with uh, the fermentation of it or anything like that. I just think it could use a little bit more complexity as far as the flavor goes. Great. So I think that wraps up another judging for us, Matt. Again, thank you for joining us. And uh, you got to break in the Imperial Stout category for us. So we really appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back. Yeah, thanks, guys. Last week, we had to cut our talk short with Mr. Matt Savage. Well, let's pick up where we left off. But you're, you're doing some different stuff now. What are you guys up to now? Yeah, so we moved out to New Hampshire to get a little bit more bang for a buck as far as land goes. Uh, you know, when we sold our house in Dracut, we couldn't really afford to buy a similar house in Dracut anymore. And really, I, you know, I, I work in New Hampshire, so I... I you know, I wanted to take the income tax break, but the main reason for it was to kind of start homesteading some land and, you know, doing some orcharding and that type of stuff. And also to, you know, potentially soon open a, a brewery up here. You know, it's a, as far as the laws go and that type of thing in New Hampshire, the, it's a little bit easier to open a brewery. There isn't as stringent laws. And as far as the cost goes for licensing and stuff, it's uh, easier up here. So that's why I started working at Post and Bean Brewing in Peterborough to try to get some uh, hands-on experience as far as from the business end of it, you know, what, uh, what needs to be done as far as a brewery, you know, how much it costs, you know, the pricing points, that type of stuff. But, you know, hopefully in the next uh, couple of years, you know, you'll see uh, Savage Bull Brewing. So, so that's what you're rolling with? Yep. Uh, and is the idea of the, the homesteading to be something that works in conjunction with the uh, brewery or is it uh, just to be more self-sufficient? Oh, no. So, yeah, definitely both. I mean, uh, you know, my dream would be to, you know, have, you know, certain things that I grow on my own land that I use for, you know, because I'm big into sours and that type of stuff. So we grow peaches and cherries and blueberries and that type of thing. You know, cucumber, uh, cucumber saisons would be something I'd be interested in doing, that type of thing. You know, from the property of, that we have now, whether it be, you know, scalable to a brewery, uh, I'm not sure. But yeah, that would be the idea. I mean, we might start somewhere and then, you know, move to a place where we could actually have, uh, you know, a bit of land and that type of stuff. But as far as, you know, entry to the market and stuff, we're just trying to get out there as soon as we can. So like, is this on the horizon? Are we going to see Savage Bull pop up anytime soon? 
Yeah, hopefully. I mean, is, is it too soon to talk about that? Yeah, we. I mean, we already have our our logo, that type of stuff. Uh, we have a Facebook uh, group, uh, Savage Bull Brewing. You know, we just. Uh, well, I don't I'm, think I'm part of that group. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up after after we're done here. I'm gonna be looking it up. Yeah, my goal my goal would be uh, you know three years. Uh, we'll we'll be open. Your partner in this venture is. A former member, he's sort of an, I guess, an off and on member of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club is Alec Bull. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Savage Bull. Yep. That's where the name comes from. Yeah, Matt but, Savage and Alec Bull. It's like, I got to tell you, it's a brilliant fucking name. I love the name <laughs> Savage Bull. It's like, it's perfect. I know. That, and that's usually the hardest thing is coming up with a name for the brewery. So, usually, you know, luckily we had good last names. Yeah. And you guys are going to, Savage Bull is going to be known for what is it going to be Saisons? You guys are going to be a. We have to give the people what they want. So we'll do some hazies. Well, you know, that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, we'll, we'd like to have a barrel program. We'd like to have that type of stuff. You know, what we'll do. From the get-go, we'll probably be, uh, you know, traditional styles, do some dry styles, do some imperial styles, do some saisons, some hazies, you know, that type of thing. Probably some, you know, kettle sours and, and that type of stuff. No milkshake IPAs. You won't see that from me. But It's one thing to have a hazy IPA. It's another thing to have a milkshake IPA or a ranch dressing IPA. Yeah. I mean, from my own my own standpoint, I think lactose only, only uh, is good in a, in a stout. You know, that's that's where I like it. You know, it gives it that creamy mouthfeel. You know, not even a milk style. You could put it in an imperial style, you know, in, in just a little bit to add some creaminess to it. But, yeah, you, I, I won't, you won't see uh, lactose IPAs coming out of us. Which is why I will be frequenting your brewery <laughs> when it is open because I know that I'm going to get some badass beers. And if I want a New England IPA, which for the record, for the people, the naysayers out there that say Marco shits on all these beers, I like New England IPAs because they are still a beer. Uh, so, Matt, like I think what's I'm, I'm kind of curious about is so obviously your your the life cycle of you in beer starts with you you know, doing this uh, shared brewing thing up in Nashua at Incredibrew all the way to this point where you're like, I'm going to open a brewery. And I wonder how much being part of the homebrew club had sort of inspired and drove that passion for you. And if you got like a ton of benefit from other people's ideas and innovations and, you know, wacky thoughts on beer. And if that helped kind of accelerate your passion for it and, and drive you to want to do this as a career. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, early on, uh, you know, Mike Switzer especially was, you know, uh, a big influence on, on me because I really hadn't met any homebrewers at that point that were even, you know, thinking about lagers or doing, you know, even German style beers besides maybe like a Hefeweizen or something like that. You know, he was one of the first that was like, oh, I did this German pills. I was like, okay, so, you know, is this going to be like a Budweiser or whatever? You know, I didn't know enough about it at the time to really appreciate it. And then he, you know, started bringing them to meetings and stuff. I was like, oh man, this is unbelievable. So that really got me on like the whole lager train type of thing. And then Joe uh, doing, you know, he did hazies from get-go, I think, you know, he was just doing, you know, IPAs. Yeah, oh, just yeah. doing IPAs from the get-go, and I mean his 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 beers have really progressed uh, a ton in the in the time that he's been part of the club. You know his his beers are solid. You know they're I mean regardless of what you think about you know the ingredients he might add to certain things. I mean his brewing practice is spot on. You know all the time. Yeah, we and give I mean, him, we give him tons of shit, and and for those because nobody knows who Joe Devana is, they only know Mr. Lactose. Joe Devana. <laughs> Joe Devana equals Mr. Lactose. Uh, we give him a ton of shit. And I said this to him when we had him on the show, that as much shit as I give him, 
the beers he makes are fire and and not just his new england ipas or the imperial stouts that he makes uh the guy also kills it in pilsners uh you know sours i mean the the guy runs the gamut on the styles that he knocks out of the park yeah for sure and then when nick joined the club you know that was our first national judge so to be able to bring beers into a meeting and stuff and get some you know honest feedback about you know what you thought you know because a lot of times early on especially uh we might not have had as many you know tasting of humbers as you guys probably have now a lot of times it would devolve into you know just a you know beer share or that type of thing because we had a lot of people that were interested in beer weren't necessarily brewing yet i think right before i kind of moved to new hampshire and and then you guys took over we started to kind of you know progress that into being more a little bit more about homebrew and a little bit less about you know commercial beers and that type of stuff so to have nick part of the club that was that was nice because i mean his beers are always spot on for the most part from you know my experience and to get some feedback from a national judge was really cool and then i mean you know uh phil i think you joined right before uh, i moved to new hampshire as well yep. i remember you you come into my house and drake it uh you know and i mean you were another lager brewer which was nice to have as part of the club to you know get those experiences because i think for a little bit we were like super you know hazy ipa heavy i was starting to get sick of that for for a little bit you know but I was a long-term like lurker of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. I, I wasn't, I, I mean, I'm right here in Tewksbury, so I'm not far away. Um, but I wasn't sure like what a homebrew club would buy you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even remember how you and I got connected, but you invited me over to your place and Joe was there. TJ was there. Uh, Aaron Soretti was there. Uh, there were a couple other folks there. And it was just like, holy shit, these guys are making... It wasn't even a real meeting. I think it was just like a Saturday get-together or something. Or Yeah, it was just a cookout. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, there were all these homebrews there. And it was just like, shit, I have been missing out. Because I, I have friends who like, you know, no offense to them, but no matter what I brewed, they were blowing smoke up my ass that this is the greatest fucking beer on the face of the earth. <laughs> free and beer will do that to people. Yeah, <laughs> it's free. It's awesome. So I think from then from uh, your place, I went to a meeting at TJ's house and I brought my homebrew and I got legit freaking feedback. Mm-hmm. It was like, damn, this is what a club buys you. It's, it's guys who not only share the same passion as you, but want to grow you as a brewer. But then turn around and say, man, that was really great. Uh, here, try my beer. What do you think? What are your thoughts? What can I do better? And now you're providing feedback as well. Right. And we still do the commercial thing. But yeah. I, I remember uh, early on when I uh, started with the club, uh, it was tough when it be- turned into a beer share because it was like, hey, I've got this really great you know, Imperial stout I want to bring. And they're like, well, hold on. We want to pop this bottle of good morning from Treehouse first. Uh, let's, let's try that. And I'm like, fuck, I've got to follow this. Like I'm not getting any good. For that. Like, or it's like, Hey, I got this great double IPA. Awesome. I, I ran up to Vermont and I got double sunshine. Let's try this first. And I'm like, fuck, like, that's what I'm following. Yeah. So it got, it got tough. And, and we do that today. That hasn't changed in our meetings, but uh, our rule is, we do only homebrew first. Once we are done with the homebrew, we'll do the commercial thing. But we want to make sure everybody gets their fair share. 
Yeah, and I think that's a better way of doing it. I mean, back in the day, I mean, a lot of the guys that were in our club too were big time, you know, beer advocate traders and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, I have this homebrew, but you have, you know, three bottles of beatification. Yeah, all right, we'll do the beatification. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So just be, it, it was difficult too because I was, you know, I didn't want to be a stickler like, you know, this guy didn't have homebrew this this time, so I wanted him to still be part of the group and you know that type of thing and not feel like we're leaving them out but yeah I, mean, I think the way that you guys are doing it now is an easier way of doing it i think i was maybe a little bit too easy <laughs> when we when we were originally opening because i didn't want to like all of a sudden piss off a bunch of people and have everybody leave the club type of thing you know matt but, you're, you're making it sound like i'm a dictator and i know <laughs> i understand that there are some folks uh, out there uh, nick Gr uh, nick Reiner, uh, that might say that i am a dictator but that is not how it is uh, we're not like that. But uh, but I, I will say, though, the thing that I found the most valuable early on, and I'm curious how this impacted you, just listening to people talk about beer and then even the wacky ideas that people had. And uh, there's uh, folks on, on the podcast, they know Dana. Dana's done a bunch of our, he's one of our BJCP certified judges. He's done some of our tastings for us. Uh, and he always had, at least in the, in, at least at the time that I've been part of the club, some really zany ideas for beers, but just hearing how he talked about and how his, what his thought process was and being able to formulate a recipe and why he thought things would work together, I would just learn a ton from that and would apply it to how I brewed. I imagine that's always how it's been. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, people just bouncing ideas off each other, because especially, I mean, you think about the time that the club has been around and all the new hops that have come out, right? So you're like, oh, I use this hop, I use this hop, you know, how, oh, how did it taste? So I don't have to waste five gallons of beer trying to brew this hop if I don't like it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, back in the day, I mean, when the hop, when the homebrew club first came about, Citra wasn't even a thing. Like, it, I'd never even heard of Citra when we were 12 you know, first, years ago. Yeah, never even heard of it. Yeah. The only thing you could brew with was like, you know, you brew Centennial, Cascade, Columbus, yeah, Columbus, Simcoe, yeah. you know, those types of things. So it wasn't like these big Galaxy, Nelson, those types of things. So, you know, to hear people, oh, have you heard of this new hop Citra? You know, I tried it in this thing, you know, it it, it seems to work, you know, uh, with this, you know, style IPA with this base malt or whatever. And yeah, Dana, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to do this thing with, you know, these crazy ingredients or whatever, or even just people's process, you know, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, last time I, I did this thing and you know when i lauded i didn't get as much as i thought i was going to get or it was too murky or that type of thing like you know what do you guys do or you know my hot break wasn't great this time around you know what did you guys do for that or what do you have for a chiller and you know how do you how do you manage your flow into your chiller or you know do you have a because i mean when i started we built a, a thing out of copper and i was just like you know bouncing this thing around then someone was like oh you've ever heard of counterflow chair and i was like no i have no idea what that is he gave me a link to it i built one out of a hose with the same copper thing and i was like oh man look at this fucking thing and chilling in like a half hour versus <laughs> bouncing this stupid thing around for two hours dane has been in the club for longer than i have i know what his craziest to date beer idea has been i gotta know it, i i i can't imagine dana's the kind of dude that hasn't always been thinking about wild and crazy beers forever can you remember a crazy beer that dana brewed or talked about brewing i can't off the top of my head i'm sure there is one though out there i mean he yeah i mean he he did traditional styles for a long time and then he all of a sudden like bounced out and started like throwing stuff into like half and license and shit like that and i was like 
All right, man, whatever. I mean, like, I'll try it. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think this is going to be good, but yeah, whatever. Phil, what's your craziest Dana beer? Uh, it has to be pizza beer. Oh, well, you think that's the craziest? Uh, it's maybe not the craziest, but absolutely the most memorable. Yeah, I mean, he stole basically the national homebrew competition show with yeah. that damn pizza beer. Um, I, I think about... Uh, two things. Dana did this like will it beer thing, and he basically um, wanted to know if I, ranch, I if, just, if I ranch just dressing would turn into beer. So he like blended ranch dressing with beer. Right, yeah, um, he's never done anything that crazy. <laughs> so, oh and then God. and then there's the um, the Kolsch slaw idea that he has, where he put <laughs> cabbage in a Kolsch. <laughs> <laughs> i think he's got crazy more crazy with his old age there's no doubting that he did the mushroom beer did, did you ever have the mushroom beer yeah yeah that was and he did the acorn beer which was pretty good too the acorn yeah, he does, the acorn coffee. Yes. He does yeah. that yeah. yeah i remember the acorn beer that uh yeah okay that takes the cake i think, he's done, I think he's done mushroom beer a couple of times or someone else mushroom else's. beer he had like i would have never thought to add mushroom to beer. yeah and like the dark a beer gives it like an earthy yeah, it was good. It, it was, was like yeah. really good. Yeah. I think would be great for folks that are listening to this show is, uh, you know, because we've got listeners all over the world. I can say that now because Phil do, yeah. Phil tracks this shit. So uh, we know we have listeners all over the world. And Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club is a small club by design will never be a huge club. So unfortunately membership is limited. Uh, so folks that are saying, damn, I really want the love and camaraderie that those guys show on that show every day. It's tough love, but it's love. It'd be great if you could just take somebody through what are the, like you've, you've done this for a long time. You went through it all when you're putting together a homebrew club, if you were going to suggest to somebody like, here are the five things that you've got to make sure that you figured out to organize the club. Yeah. I mean, so the first would be, you know, at least know of a couple members that are going to be serious members that are going to show up, you know, early on, we had, you know, a solid group of probably four or five guys that were going to show up at every meeting because if you have, you know, all of a sudden you start blowing up, but only people are, you know, just paying the dues and never showing up, then the meetings really don't, don't have, you know, the, they're not going to pull in more members because you need, you need people there to be interacting and to be an actual club. Otherwise you're just an internet club and you know, you could do brew network or whatever the Christ you want to do for that. You know, the biggest thing would be signing up on the AHA site, you know, to get it in there. So that people search when they move to a new place or they're looking for a club or something like that, you show up. I'd say the second one would be a Facebook group you know, just so that people could search it. You could have a link in the AHA one or something like that that would go to this Facebook group so you could have communication with people before they actually came to a, a meeting or something like that. I would say also, you know, either a website or some sort like a BFD kind of does like a, you know, it's like an email group type of thing or something like that where you can communicate out. Because, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I know that when we started getting bigger, 
groups of people coming up, you know, putting your address on a, on a Google calendar became a, an issue at that point. Right. Cause you're going to have so many people there. You don't want people that aren't invited showing up or something like that. So that would be a big thing to, to have some sort of, you know, a website or, or uh, an email group or something like that. And then you really have to think about how many people you're going to have there. And then also the consumption factor, right? You don't want people getting tanked at your house and then leaving. Cause then you're kind of held liable for that. Then also you need an initial idea of what your group is actually even going to be, right? Are you going to try to promote, you know, uh, people getting better at brewing? Do you just really want to be a group that's going to brew together? You know, what is your, what is your premise for the actual group? Cause you don't really have that. Then you don't have a group. You need, you need an idea of what you actually want to achieve as that group. Do you want to do competitions? You just want to be a group that's going to brew together every so often. You just want to have a people to bounce ideas off of and try your beer, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So it sounds like, this isn't much different than starting a business. You're essentially establishing some core values. You're establishing a mission. You're getting some, let's say, followers, some sort of uh, group that uh, will come along for the ride. And then having some level of organization to think through where you want to be, how you want to be there, how you want to tackle it. The, our club now has gotten a little bit you know, we've been doing this for a while. So we've learned some things over time. Like we have insurance now to cover ourselves for liability. If you're starting a club, you're likely not going to have insurance out of the gate. So you got to think through some of those things, but we've thought like, all right, we we've got to manage risk. Now we've gotten more organized, like all that stuff. But, uh, but it sounds like those are the things that you really want to be thinking about is uh, just making sure that you're thoughtful on, why the hell do you want a club to begin with? What's the purpose of your club? What's the the values of your club? And then having a group of folks that fit into those values. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's a good uh, analogy is, you know, starting a business. You know, you're not necessarily looking in to making a profit or anything like that. But, yeah, having your business statement, that type of thing, you know, why do you even want to do this? Because if you can't come up with that, I mean, there's no point in even doing the club because you're just not, you know, it's not going to have your heart into it. I mean, it's just going to fall apart quickly because you really, you know, for those first two or three years, I mean, it was really just me keeping the club together, making sure that people are organized and that type of stuff. You know, I mean, once you can, you know, span some of that out where you have members that are going to be there for a long period of time. Cause I mean, we had members, you know, be there for a few meetings, drop out and we have new ones coming in. But once you have those core, those core people and you can start putting out officers and that type of stuff, that's when the, the club becomes more solidified. You know what I mean? Cause then there's more people taking uh, stock in, in, in your club besides just you, you know, the, so that's really what keeps it together and make it, you know, progress out type of thing. Yeah. And I, I think the foundation that you laid for the club has thrilled and excited with the things going on in the club today is I'm sure that it was when you first started the club. Uh, we've got excellent engagement. Uh, the mission is basically the same. Like when you think about what you were just talking about a little while ago, we're doing those same things today. And coincidentally, like it's just when I joined the club, the feeling that I got from the values of the club right out of the gate are how we wanted to continue it. And that's how we've continued it. And then I think those values are there with development and learning and, and making it about homebrew. Uh, but the commercial stuff and, and all the other stuff is still important because it's still an opportunity to learn and, and to digest information and talk about beer and just share that, that passion and, and growth and, and homebrewing. Homebrewing is as big of an industry now as it was. I mean, it's a huge industry right now. There's, 
some argument to be made if it's worth making your own beer today because there's so many options available at relatively good prices of really great beer. So can you really make a beer better than what you can buy for less? Probably not. So you're really doing it because you're interested in the craft and learning and all that stuff. But I mean, that foundation that you guys laid 12 years ago still lives strong with the club. And and we always say to folks, like, if you want to um, grow in, in home brewing and really develop your craft, what probably one of the best ways to do it is get yourself part of a group that does the same thing. They're going to lift you up uh, or, and you're going to lift them up at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this the same thing could be said, right? Like with people that like to cook, right? You could go out to a restaurant, get better food, but if it's a passion that you have, it's you know, the enjoyment that you take from it, regardless of what the end product might be. You could screw something completely up, but that brew day was like, you know, the best time you had that whole week. You got to hang out with your buddy or whatever. You got to do it by yourself or whatever the case may be. You got to go through a thought process of making that recipe, that type of thing. I mean, and I think I think you're correct, you know, as far as, you know, the club goes with the you know, instilling the values and stuff. I think that was why it was like a you know a seamless uh, transition over. I mean, I think you and TJ and Nick and everybody else that took, you know, leadership roles in the club once I moved up to New Hampshire, you know, had the same ideas and premise and stuff of what the club should be. And I think that's why it's worked out so well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this has been an, an awesome chat and, and I love catching up with you. We don't get to see you enough anymore. You, uh, you know, living in New Hampshire and, and doing your thing up there. We, uh, we've got you, we've got you to come down to a couple of meetings. So it is great when we do get you to come down and we get to try some of your beers, but, uh, hopefully we can see you soon, especially with this whole pandemic thing. Uh, you know, we're not really seeing anybody right now, but, but we hope to catch up soon in person, not on this virtual stuff have some beers, enjoy each other's company like we used to. I'm dying to get back up to your property because the last time I was there, the homestead was a work in progress. I feel like it's probably gotten like like full-on fledged mini farm up there right now is what I'm expecting uh, the next time I get up there. But uh, we really appreciate you taking the time with us and talking with us and sharing the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club story and, and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This was great. That's it for this week. Next week on the show, we're going to talk through our favorite homebrew books, from some nice light reading to some really intense, deep-divey stuff. And we're going to judge a Kolsch, so stay tuned for that right here on Strike Mash Boil. The Strike Mash Boil podcast is produced by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, an AHA-sanctioned club. Follow us on Instagram at Strike Mash Boil. Join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC, or send us some feedback at Strike Mash Boil at MVHBC.com.